What's up, hardcore humans? This is Dr. Mike. I'm very excited about today's episode. We've got songwriter, producer, musician, Niall Rogers. Niall, of course, is a founding member of the band Chic and has been a writer, musician, or producer on countless hit records. So many of the anthems from my life, including not only Chic's hits such as La Freak, but also Sister Sledge's We Are Family, David Bowie's Let's Dance, Madonna's Like a Virgin, and Daft Punk's Get Lucky. The list goes on and on. He's been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and he's a three-time Grammy winner. Now, many people don't know that Niall is also a lifelong activist. He was a member of the Black Panther Party in New York and a co-founder of the We Are Family Foundation, an organization committed to fighting systemic racism and injustice. So what we're going to talk about today is Niall's approach to his life and work. These are very stressful and troubling times. Many of us feel like we can be angry at what's happening in the world, and it will motivate us to make changes maybe by protesting, or maybe getting politically active. Then some of us feel that we don't want to give in to the anger and hate, or maybe we just want to protect ourselves from the stress and focus on our lives. And that's often a tough choice. We don't want to be consumed by unhealthy stress, but we also don't want to ignore the problems in the world around us. But in many ways, Niall shows us that that's a false choice. We can be loving and connected to others, even ones with whom we disagree, and be personally and politically active. We can love the world and change it at the same time. Niall has found a different type of sweet spot. He connects to a feeling of love, a utopian view of the world in which we are all connected, and that drives him to action both as an activist and a musician. I talk with Niall about how that utopian sense of love and connection has driven his activism and music throughout his life. Now, the goal of hardcore humanism is to help people really understand their purpose in life and put it into action. So let's listen to how Niall understands and pursues his purpose throughout his life. So we are absolutely thrilled to be here with the great Niall Rogers on the Hardcore Humanism podcast. This is a particularly a special moment for me because this man was directly involved in so much of the music that I grew up with and in different ways, whether it was writing, performing, producing songs like La Freak when he was with Chic, Madonna's Like a Virgin, my personal favorite of all, you know, Duran Duran's The Reflex, Bowie's Let's Dance. I, I could go on and on. We would take up the whole podcast. But what I want to do is start with just thanking you for giving the world your music. And what we're going to talk about today is what I think is a very fascinating topic, which is the concept of utopian love, the idea of envisioning a world that is better than the one that we have. And Niall has explored that in so many different ways in his life. But two of the particularly prominent ways have been through his music, whether it was disco or other forms of music throughout his life, and through activism with the Black Panther Party. And so what we're going to do is really take a journey on his approach to this concept of utopian love and his understanding of how he was able to conceptualize it and put it into effect throughout his life. So, Niall, welcome. Um, Thank you so much for being here. How are you? And so one of the things, let's talk, maybe go right back to the beginning. In your life, from what I've read, growing up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, there were parts of your life that actually were not as, dare I say, utopian, but there were certain parts 
involving community, et cetera, that really were. And I'm kind of curious, just from your perspective, how your upbringing led to this concept of a utopian love, a better world. Well, I grew up in a society that was really uh, a very colorful mosaic of neighborhoods and cultures, and we were all crammed together. So I grew up on the Lower East Side. Many people, if they were Jewish, they considered the Lower East Side Jewish. If they were Puerto Rican, they considered Puerto Rican. If they were Chinese, Chinatown was there. I mean, this was really, really concentrated cultures, and they spilled over into everything. Little Italy was down there. It wasn't a huge black community. It was a small black community. But because we had projects, which were basically for lower-income people, mostly black people resided in the projects. So my family, we were a little bit luckier than most in that my uncle had a job as the superintendent of a building. So we got an apartment in his building. Now, mind you, it was still a tenement, one of those railroad apartments, but still we didn't have to live in the projects. So the great thing about my life and all these different cultures around me is that they had a number of remedial projects that helped these immigrants assimilate into American society, right? So you got to remember, I'm 67 years old, so this was a long time ago. These were people who were just coming over. So there were Jewish people that were learning how to speak English, and, you know, that's where all the caricatures come from, all the comedy on TV and all that stuff was because these guys were first-generation immigrants. They were... Spanish people, there were a lot of Puerto Rican people. Look at West Side Story, a great example. A lot of Puerto Ricans, Italians, Little Italy. I mean, that that was the spot. Chinatown. I mean, my cousins lived in Chinatown. My Kung Fu school was in Chinatown. I went there all the time. My first job as a child, as a nine-year-old child, was working for Gus the Pickle King. And um, I was nine years old, and this was right between Chinatown and the most orthodox Jewish neighborhood in in the Lower East Side. So this stuff all spilled into my life. Everybody, for the most part, mainly because I was a child, treated me with kindness and respect. And I was the working child and I was taught to have good manners. I was nice to people. I spoke clearly. and, And that was a good part of my life. But there was also the ugly part of it. There was also the being chased by bullies and and all that sort of stuff. And then the police taking their side. I mean, just I can give you endless stories. And, And for me, it feels almost boring because it just happened so much and so regularly that I actually changed it into a game. I looked at it like I was this really fast runner. I could outrun everybody. So I never got caught. I was never arrested. I I don't have a record. I, I never did anything wrong. So at first I was scared, but then it just became normal life. And I started to care for people, love people, appreciate people, help people. My parents taught me to treat people the way that you'd want them to treat you. So that's just the sort of hippie lens that I looked at the world through. And, you know, it's hard to explain it sometimes because I don't know how a person can misconstrue our hearts that were 
loving and giving and wanted to do nothing but good stuff, that when I joined the Panther Party, it was exactly the same. The easiest way I try and get people to envision this is I say, in real life, have you ever seen a policeman riding on the hood of a car, holding on with one hand, shooting criminals? No, but in the movies, you see that all the time. They jump on the car and ride on the top of it. It never happens. Never. You have never seen that in real life. Ever. And the Black Panther Party, the image that they show over and over and over again are the Panthers going into the Oakland courthouse with guns. Well, guns were legal. You could carry legal in California, and they did everything by the book. That's how we were taught to do everything by the book. But if you show that one picture all the time, that looks like what Black Panthers do. When you show policemen riding on the hoods of cars, you know, and they're heroes, that's what you think. You've never seen that once in your life, ever. But, you know... People can absorb that and think of, you know, the Bruce Willis figure doing these incredible feats as a cop. But, you know, no one can do that. But in um, suspension of disbelief in movies, you know, in, in stories, they call it. But for some reason, when you look at the Panthers, that one image and the thing that's really hysterical to me is the cache of weapons that they supposedly found at every Black Panther house they raided. Well, go back and look at that stuff. It's the same cache of weapons in every shot. It's, it's taken from like a military photo. Like they went on some army base or whatever and took a picture and they used that same picture. And nowadays, people would laugh because they'd find it on the internet. And they say, doesn't this curiously look like the same picture that they use? But if it shows up in your newspaper, you go, oh my God, you see M16s and hand grenades and stuff. But it was just the FBI were really against us then. I would almost say that if we could move into the world as it is right now, and believe me, I've had this conversation with many a police officer and many an FBI agent who were involved with COINTELPRO who have become my friends and apologized to me. I do not make this stuff up. That if they existed now and the Black Panther Party, the way we were thin, we existed now, we would be quite aligned because as you see now, people talk about the good cops and the bad cops and the so-and-so. I think that probably most people join these organizations, be it the FBI or the Black Panthers or whatever, you join it basically to be good. Your philosophy is one of good and doing the right thing. We have bullies in every organization. And sometimes those bullies can make you do things that you would normally not do. I have to say that in all the time that I was in the party, that never happened to me. And the one time that a bully tried to use his power in a way that I disagree with, I disagree with him. And I just said, no, we're not doing that. We have this work to do. We have this woman's house to take care of. And that's it. And I'm disobeying orders today. There you go. You can write me up for suspension, do whatever you want. But we have a duty to the people, not to you. But that, that was one incident. Basically, we functioned very well. The Panthers taught me how to do business with local vendors, to talk to the businesses that were in the community, 
to convince them that it was a great tax write-off for them to give us the food that was perishable that they'd have to return and have a negative balance on their books. Whereas if they donated it to us, they'd get a tax write-off and they wouldn't have to send it back. I don't know if you're old enough to remember when we used to have stores that sold what they called day-old bread or something like that. But it was I am very it was really popular in New York and poor people went to shop at those places. But we convinced them, hey, wait a minute, you have, those would be returns, but if you give it to us, tax write-off, feed kids, great. So the truth is, is that if you talk to any vendor, they loved us. They thought we were wonderful. And people used to look at us with pride when we marched through the community. That's why we didn't take the subway anywhere. We walked. We wanted people to see us coming through there. We wanted people to feel that there was that extra safety net, unfortunately, at that time, against the police and against sometimes the landlords and the corporations that would hire pretty tough people to kick them out or turn their heat off or like like you said you're in the basement now in the boiler room we'd go in there and fix their boilers and turn on the heat in the winter now you're talking about being in that more loving place for a lot of people they feel like the world separates into a dichotomy which is that you're either angry and active or you're loving and therefore relaxed and passive you know, and you found the spot of being able to be both loving and active. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, two things. Number one, with all the things that you even just described in this conversation, I mean, there's plenty of reason to be furious. I mean, to be full of hate. How did you pivot to being in a more loving place? And then how did you take that and say, well, I want to not just feel loving. I want to actively be loving. Love as a verb, if you will. Well, I think that the main thing is to have good people around you. And when you surround yourself with like-minded people, they can help you through those really, really tough moments. The great thing about my life is that I was saved by the people around me. I was, I was taught guitar by people on the streets who knew different things until I was able to afford private tutors. My family... We lived in, in the village in the beatnik community. So the beatniks became hippies and hippies were all about, hey man, you know, free love. Hey man, you want to you shout of my, Amad- what was the, uh, I was going to say Amadeus. No, that's Michigan. <laughs> no, the, the, what was that silly wine? The wine from Portugal, everybody. Almaden. You want to have some of my Almaden, man? You know, man, you know, from my goat flask. That's... <laughs> That, that's what our culture was like. You know, if you had a, a flask of wine, you see somebody on the street, man, you know, give it to them. And it was all about sharing peace, love. And we tried to live that. If you see all of the, the religions and the, the different sort of communal movements that popped up around there, maybe some of them got corrupted. In fact, a lot of them did. But the way that they started was basically because the vibe was about peace and love and unity. And right after I hopped out of the shower this morning, I saw someone talking about the transgender community and the trans community needing funding and things like that and and not being media savvy and all sorts of things like this and people getting murdered and they don't even know where to go and who to report to because they just feel like they're on the outside of the outside of society. And the thing that was so great about 
the time that I grew up in is that the Black power movement, women's power, indigenous people, Latinos, everybody sort of came together. The Vietnam War, anti-war movement sort of brought everybody together because we were all affected by that. You know, only a handful of people like our current president and rich people could get out of the draft and say, I have toe spurs or something like that. Like, what are you, what? You know, toe spurs, come on, man. <laughs> a black person with toe spurs, like, let him go first. So we really came together. The anti-war movement brought people together. And I know that I'm talking a lot of stuff that may feel like I'm sidebarring, but the truth is, is that the way that that forged who I am and it stayed the same way throughout my entire life is because when I went into a disco for the first time, I saw the physical embodiment of what we were trying to do politically. We saw people from all different walks of life, completely disparate people all together dancing to Donna Summer, I Love to Love You Baby. And there were gay people, black people, Puerto Rican people. Like, cause that's, that was my neighborhood. So there were Chinese people or Asians, you know, like I say Chinese, we're in Chinatown, but they could have been of any Asian background. But, you know, it was just amazing to see that. And I was like, wow, that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to bring all these people together. That's why J. Edgar Hoover said that we were, I don't know what he called us, but the greatest threat to American democracy was like, oh, because like now everybody's got everybody's back. Isn't that what America's supposed to be about? We pledge allegiance to the flag, not to our old country to our new country. That was all about manifest destiny. I mean, come on, you know, it's like see the shining sea and it wasn't gonna be like Europe. We weren't gonna fight. Missouri's not supposed to fight with New Jersey and New Jersey's not supposed to fight with California. It was like, we don't pledge allegiance to our state. It's to our flag, the country. And, and all of a sudden, Donna Summer comes on and the village people come on and everybody's pledging allegiance to this music all without prompting. It was just the beat. It was primal. It was loving. And nobody criticized anybody. Nobody said, oh, that dude looks gay. Or that person looks so-and-so. Oh, that suit is out of date. Oh, check that person out wearing polyester. As a matter of fact, there were a couple of good joke records that talked about people in the crowd and everybody took it lightly. It wasn't like hardcore. It wasn't like, I think it was Monty Rock, Oh, oh, my wig is wet, you know, the polyester, and, you know. (laughs) Now, you're sitting in the situation where you've got that love, and you're seeing this this utopian world. Now, you could have just passively existed in that world. It sounded like it was very nice. You could have just gone into a disco. You could have just noticed that there was the Black Panther Party. But what got you to the point where you said, no, I I don't just want to live in this world. I want to actively contribute to it. I want to be a part of it in a more direct way. It's because I was an artist. And as an artist, I actively chose to talk about the world that I wanted to see rather than the world that I was in. Maybe I was a dreamer. If you look at my old report cards, they always say the same thing. 
Nile is a good student, but he doesn't pay attention in class. He's looking out the window. He's dreaming. I'm always looking out the window, imagining what it would be like if I walk home today and nobody calls me names or, or, you know. So I was always dreaming about the good world that we had talked about or the good world that I had read about. I was a voracious reader when I was a child. I was born quite sickly. Therefore, I was raised in hospitals a lot of the time. And one particular hospital was known for its early childhood development programs. So the very first book I read was Treasure Island. The second book I read was Moby Dick. I mean, that that's the type of progressive education programs that they had because it was a one-room classroom. So even though I was five and a half, six years old, I was in there with 16-year-olds. So I was learning the same thing they learned. By the time I went to a regular, proper school, I was like, they were giving me C, Dick, run, run, Jane, run. I was like going, uh, well, Queequay, saw the, you know, whatever. It was like, whoa, I, C, Dick, run. Come on, guys. You know, I just was a dreamer. I really engrossed myself in this fantasy world. And music was my escapism. I could write about this beautiful utopian world that you described, I may not have necessarily seen it sort of utopian-like, but I certainly saw it being kinder and gentler, if you will. Yeah, now, but not all dreamers, I mean, obviously, for anyone who's familiar with your catalog, the amount of work that needed to go in to that is, over the course of your life, is astounding. You know, you're saying you're, you're sitting there dreaming, you were like writing the soundtrack of the rest of our lives. But that pivot of like, I'm going to work, I'm going to keep working. Because a lot, a lot of people who dream, they're, they're very content with just dreaming. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if X, Y, and Z? And here you are, again, that decision to do it. Did you ever kind of ask yourself, hey, how come I'm all of a sudden doing this stuff? Or like, what's getting me to not just listen to the music, but to write the music and perform the music? I think that it's sort of just, happened accidentally. It evolved an instrumentalist who was performing other composers' work. So I started out in classical music. So I started, my first instrument was the flute. And I went through a series of instruments based on the school that I was transferred to because unfortunately my parents, interracial couple, and they were heroin addicts and, you know, beatniks and moving from this school to that school to this school to that school. But because we had a standardized curriculum, Every school taught music, every school taught art, every school, you know, it was like always the same. We're reading the same books. We're learning. If you're in the third grade, these are the books. If you're in the fourth grade, these are the books. Fifth grade, these are the books. So I was always able to keep up with the class. And the class that I loved was music. And whatever instrument they assigned me, which was an instrument that would be lacking in the orchestra that they would put together at the various schools, taught me how to write and orchestrate and how each one of those instruments function in a symphony orchestra. So by the time I became a composer during the disco era, you know, the big Barry White, you know, I could do all that stuff with one hand tied behind my back because I knew it. I knew how it all functioned. I certainly couldn't play the baritone horn, but I knew the musical written range. I knew all that stuff. I knew where it should function and 
I knew the rules that were laid down and I also knew how to break them because my family was into modern jazz and bebop. So I had a wealth of musical knowledge that I now could deploy in the pop world. And that's why my pop songs, a great example is David Bowie's Let's Dance. What other pop song has minor 13 chord in it? You know what I mean? Like I said, maybe a Steely Dan record, possibly. But because I was able to use the concept of smooth voice leading and make something that would be fairly dissonant to a regular pop song sound quite nice in David's song because it becomes a passing chord, but not a fast passing chord in the typical sense. It's not just a way to get from here to there. I use it and I voice it in a way where it's just become, where it becomes incredibly simple, where it's just you know, a whole tone kind of movement is just going, dun, dun, dun. it's actually sort of intellectually clever, but when you hear it, you don't even think about it. Nobody says, wow, that's a minor 13 chord there. It's just the second chord in the Let's Dance progression. Now, one of the things that's interesting about what you're describing is that for you, there were these different parts of your life that, and again, when I say different, I think, you know, we're definitely coming to the understanding that these were all part of the same dynamic, that loving feeling. But you were seeing in some ways things that you knew about firsthand that weren't necessarily being expressed in the music. And so when somebody like myself listens to the music that you wrote or performed or, or produced or remixed, I may have, oh, this is this great, this is loving feeling, it's utopian, it's fantastic, but I don't necessarily then know about all the issues that you're describing that you grew up with that were being addressed by the Black Panther Party. And so one of the things I'm kind of curious about is what was your sense of when people listened to your music who maybe didn't grow up the way you did and were kind of feeling good, was there ever a risk in your mind that, okay, so now they're going to feel so good that they're going to think that there are no problems in the world? No, no, you never. I think the greatest problem any artist can indulge themselves in is thinking about the ramifications of their passion. I think that, you know, in a strange way, and this is something I've noticed, that we're all sort of like children and we just want to be heard. And it's unfortunate sometimes when people misinterpret what you're saying. Like I remember Bruce Springsteen going on about people not understanding what he was talking about and born in the USA. And like all of a sudden, like these super right-wing organizations were like, born in the USA. But the fact is, is that if Bruce Springsteen had considered that as a possibility, he wouldn't have written the song. He had to be true to his heart to write the song. And then people take away from it what they will. I think that it's, I mean, man, I never try and tell people to feel what they're going to feel. If they want to know what I was feeling when I was writing it, I'll explain it to them. But I find it interesting when I'm sitting in a room and I'll hear somebody's voice behind me say, wow, that reminds me of so-and-so. And I'll listen, I'll go, oh, I know what part of the song they're talking about. Now, at the time I was writing it, I wasn't thinking that, but then I go, oh yeah, it does yeah, have certain characteristics of that because we all have other music embedded in our 
psyche. You know, it's it's in there. And what we call originality is us trying to change it around <laughs> to make it sound like David Bowie said it to me so fantastic. He says, and believe me, I'm not using accents to make fun of people at all, but it's just the way that things sound to my ears because I still feel like a child when I hear things. And I go, wow, that's so cool. So David says to me, no, nah, darling, I want it to be the same, but different. <laughs> I was like, I, I so get it. I always talk about band logic, B-A-N-D logic. That's never, ever to be confused with actual logic because it makes no sense in the regular person. But when David said that to me, no, darling, I want it to be the same, but different. <laughs> I got like, I got it, David. That's what we all do. We want it to be the same, but different. Do you have any songs, if you feel comfortable talking about it, that you feel like you've seen particularly misinterpreted in terms of where your head was at or what you intended versus what people picked up from it, kind of in that Born in the USA way? The greatest one is the biggest song. So the biggest song in the history of Atlantic Records is this little ditty that we threw together because we weren't allowed one night into Studio 54 And what was really ironic was that we were invited by the star who was performing that night. So if I had gone with my girlfriend, who was like this hot girl from Fashion Institute of Technology who can get into any club, well, she wasn't coming there that night because we were going for business because Grace Jones invited us. But we only had one conversation with Grace Jones. We didn't know what she spoke like. So she says to us in an accent that was reminiscent of Bella Lugosi, Marlena Dietrich, and Bob Marley. She says, so darlings, what you do is you just go to the back door and you tell them you're a person of friends of Miss Grace Jones. That's exactly what we did. We tried to imitate Grace Jones and go, hello, we are personal friends of Miss Grace Jones. And the guy slams the door in our faces and says, ah, F off. And we went, no, 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 we're dead serious. Everybody's trying to get into Studio 54. They have probably heard every rap under the sun. John Gotti sent me here. The President of the United States sent me here. Whatever. I'm friends with Grace Jones. It's an easy one to come up with. But we were serious. She had invited us. Anyway, we tried. And at the second time, the guy opened the door. He slammed it. He said, didn't I tell you to F off? And we're like, whoa, we're not getting in the studio that night. So we went home and we wrote this song that eventually would start out as F Studio 54. And it was great. We were into it. We had just downed two bottles of champagne, Dom Perignon, which we used to call rock and roll mouthwash. And um, you get all lightheaded when you drink it so fast. And um, because on every chic record in the beginning, we would do what we call gang vocals, which were taught to us by our, our really good friend and sometimes band leader, Luther Vandross. And he would call it the gang vocal. He would say that the gang vocal was really the spirit of disco, like everybody singing at the same time. So that's how our records were. We recorded our records with a whole bunch of people singing the melody. And when we get to the chorus, we go, ah, freak out, le freak, c'est chic. 
we put the Le Freak, well, Bernard thought of that to try and make the dance ours. We were writing about a dance that everybody was doing in, in New York called The Freak. But we wanted to make it ours. We wanted to own it like Chubby Checker owned the twist. Well, every time I meet an African musician or when I met Nelson Mandela or I meet almost anyone from Africa, they actually think we're singing Africa. L'Afrique, c'est chic. Makes perfect sense. And I cannot tell you how many hundreds of times, hundreds, I've been in an airport and a guy look at me and go, Africa, he wrote Africa, Africa, l'Afrique, c'est chic. He's the guy, he's the one. And I'm like, well, yeah, I, I, yeah, I guess I wrote Africa. Because you think about Luther's accent mixed with Bernard's accent mixed with Alpha's accent mixed with Robin's accent mixed with my accent mixed with, and all of us can't speak a lick of French. We can write it, but can't speak it. And it came out as Africa instead of out. <laughs> That's fantastic. I also appreciate what you're saying about not necessarily wanting to define too much what a song means, period, and just letting people read into it. Because, I mean, look at that. That is, you know, something you didn't intend. But how many people were uplifted because of that? And it's like, who cares if that's not what you originally intended? It's what they heard. You know what I mean? It's what they read into it. Can you imagine Nelson Mandela telling you how cool that is? <laughs> you certainly can't correct him. No, that, that's one I think you just need to let slide. <laughs> Even though you go, have you heard about the new dance craze? Listen to us. I'm sure you'll be amazed. Big fun to be had by everyone. It's up to you, Shirley. It's all about a dance. Young and old are doing it, I'm told. Just one try, so they don't understand the English. But we get to Africa. To L'Afrique. You know, I, I want to move a little bit to current time. I found myself, quite frankly, wondering what you thought about everything that was happening when I was thinking of like, well, who are people that I feel like have the history and the gravitas and the experience to be able to comment on the state of the world? You know, you were one of the people that came into my head. And whether you want to call it utopian or that loving vibe, Black Panther Party, disco, how can that inform people now? It's super exciting to me because every day I wake up, I see a new person who's at the forefront of a movement in their community or their country or whatever. It isn't just five or 10 people that we can look to, like Malcolm X or Martin Luther King or Gloria Steinem or you know one person like that. It's all over. You know, this is what we believed in, a people's movement. And different communities have different needs. And that's why I think it's so important. And it feels like the most important need that people are focusing on is Black Lives Matter. And the reason why, and I heard this young girl explain it on TikTok so well, talking to her mom. She says, you know, mom, if you're walking down the street and you saw a house burning, would you help put the fire out? And the mother said instantly, of course I would. She said, that's what Black Lives Matter means. Our house ain't on fire. 
that house is on fire. Let's go put that fire out. I'm paraphrasing her poorly, but she was just saying that let's put that fire out. So that way, once we put the most serious fire out, then we can deal with the other things sequentially. She was trying to explain institutional racism, saying that it's so big that every black person's house really is on fire. And when I drive down the street, I don't know if I'm going to make it home or not. I mean, it really is that, it's that crazy that honestly, every single black person, and you can even hear police chiefs talking, if they're not in their uniform or, you know, they're not garbed out and they're just like a regular black person, they become that regular black person that can be killed. And uh, it's inspiring to me because just yesterday I was speaking to someone who lives in my same New York, like now I'm in my recording studio in Connecticut, but the last few days I've been in New York because I have to have eye surgery. And I was talking to a journalist who actually lived a few blocks away from me. And he says he couldn't believe it. He looked out of his window and it was a huge Black Lives Matter. He said it was about, uh, about two or 3,000 people. And he says they were all on bicycles. And he said they were all white. <laughs> he, said, he said it was amazing to him. I said, yeah, I live in this town that when I moved here, yeah, Donna Summer lived here, Ashwin and Simpson lived here. Diana Ross lived right down the block. There were all these other, but people have gone now. You know, for whatever reasons, I'm one of the few musicians left. You know, Tina and Franz from Talking Heads still live here. Michael Bolton still lives here. But when I moved here, it was loaded with musicians. Now it's just little old me. But we had a demonstration in town and it was like two or 3,000 white kids laying down in the middle of the street, not letting people go over the bridge. Now, some people would say, oh, man, you're blocking the bridge. But you know what? People understood. They understood it was their children. They were their own children. What cause is so big that my own children are going to go out there and lay in the street? I have to become aware. And that's why my organization, We Are Family Foundation, that's why we concentrate on teens and youth. Because once we get to a certain age, I mean, you know this is pretty factual. And once we get to a certain age, we just keep listening to the same songs that we liked when we were younger. Our philosophy, you know, our politics are pretty much made up. It's very difficult to change. Now we have jobs, and we get into a rut. And it's a sort of state of arrested development that we live in basically for the rest of our lives. It doesn't seem like we continue to have this thirst to acquire new knowledge, like when we were younger, where we can't help it. I mean, look at a little baby, they're just running around. You, you gotta watch them all the time because they wanna see what's behind the next closed door. When we get to a certain age, we lose that thirst for knowledge. We, we're, we take time to you know, watch movies or read books and things like that, but it doesn't feel like we have that same kind of super thirst to be smarter, to be more informed. But we noticed that when we started to work with teens, man, are they impressive and inspiring. And I think about it same me with me. I mean, when I was that age, oh my God, I, I was, my munificence was boundless. I had more energy and more love and more 
to give, even though I was homeless half the time. I was poor, but there was never a concert that I didn't see. There was never a movie that I didn't see. It because I had friends. I, you know, hey man, my man would let me in. And he would even tell the owner of the movie theater because it was so many mom and pop businesses. You know, I mean, mainly exhibitors, which they call movie theater owners, were, you know, were mom and pop. It wasn't like big, gigantic chains. Some of them were, but most of them in the community were these small little operations. So I could do everything. I could be around like-minded people. And life was, yeah, almost utopian in the midst of the naked city, in the midst of this crazy, crazy place that had hardcore mafia activity, hardcore crime going on on all different levels, but still there was a sense of love and dignity and decorum. And even when you get into the sort of gangster realm, they treated the patrons with a certain kind of dignity and respect because that's where their money was coming from. So we would go to like gangster clubs, like, hey, no, come on, come on, let me give you my father's shirt. I love you, man. You play great. So I can't help but be a child, a victim, if you will, but a product of that system, that system of inequity, racial injustice, and finding that one good person that would say, hey, man, come here. Let me help you out. There's a picture that I posted on my Instagram a few days ago of me standing there, panther down with all the other people from my branch and where they're facing off the cops. And two police officers are looking at this white woman who's a, I think she worked for the Daily News and she's a news reporter, photographer, and she's taking a picture of the cops and not necessarily the Panthers. We're in the picture, but they want to show you what these cops were getting ready to face off against. Well, what the cop didn't know that the guy that he was standing directly in front of was this white woman's son who was in my section. He was standing right next to me. And in the picture, you can see this light-skinned guy and you see another black dude with horn-rimmed glasses and his nose turned up. That's me. And he's looking at this woman and that's her son next to me. I won't say his name. I don't know if he identifies with that now, but I believe he is because we all are still great friends. I just haven't seen him in ages. But he didn't realize, he didn't know that that was his mother because, and, I, and the way I signed the photo was I said, because her son's life mattered, black lives matter. And then they flagged me, <laughs> flagged me on like Twitter and Instagram. And it's like, well, yeah, this picture can have an outcome on the election. I went, so I wrote and I complained and I said, do you know that I've posted this exact same picture 15, 20 times? I've been on social media for years now, ever since I developed cancer. I've had cancer twice. I've been talking about it for years and I've shown this picture. So I wrote them a very, very kind and gentle letter saying that I have posted this picture many, many times. It's historical fact. As a matter of fact, I've even written an autobiography and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, yeah. This is just part of New York history. Sorry, this can have a negative outcome or whatever, some kind of outcome on the elections. I'm like, it's the same photo. Once again, it's like going back to the cache of weapons. It was the exact same cache of weapons, and they just put it in. So just because I wrote, her son's life mattered, Black Lives Matter, that was the phrase that the algorithm keyed off of. And I became sort of on their 
we like to call it the SH blank blank list for a couple of weeks. And just to try it out, I put up a picture, a really innocuous picture of me with a bunch of music students. <laughs> and it popped up. <laughs> we cannot post this picture because I'm like, what is me with a bunch of kids? We're all music students going up the steps where they named the building after me. And I said, oh, okay, so I'm on this list. And the algorithm probably is like, if you get flagged, you're on that list for a week or two. No matter what you post, I was going to put Mickey Mouse up and see what happened. Then I get sued by Disney for copyright infringement. <laughs> it's interesting that term that you're using, that thirsty. We take the art of our, let's broadly say rock stars, if you, if you want to say, and you take somebody like your career and, and how long it's been and how you, by definition, had to remain thirsty to work in that many different projects over that many different decades and things are still going. And yet we don't necessarily then absorb or recognize that thirst. We, we just sort of take the little the apples that fall off the tree, mm -hmm. you know, and, and what you're talking about right now on a sociopolitical level is we kind of as a society need to have a certain thirst if we want to make change. How, from your perspective, do you get people to pay attention to that part of it? See, that's the thing, man, is that as an artist, honestly, I'm not really trying to get them to do that. All I do is hope they see that. I'm inspired by what I see and what I feel. And I never try and force my values on people. And I'm like that on the most granular level. And I, I mean, so in other words, I don't try and force my opinion upon people. I don't try and tell you what kind of food you like, or you should like this one better. And we have taste buds that say this thing tastes good to us. And I remember when I was a kid having a fight with one of my cousins over which ice cream tasted better, vanilla or chocolate. And for a long time, vanilla tasted really great to me. Chocolate was it was almost a sophisticated taste. You had to grow up to like chocolate. Chocolate was like the caviar of ice cream when I was a kid. But then all of a sudden, vanilla tasted boring to me. And I only wanted chocolate. And I wanted ice cream that was complicated and had lots of flavors. This happened in about two or three years. And if somebody offered me vanilla ice cream, man, that's boring, man. Give me like mango or that cool stuff that they serve in Chinatown. You know, so people just develop. We evolve. I think that if we stay childlike, which is what I believe in, I'm, I guess Peter Pan was one of those books that I read early too. If we sort of stay childlike, and I know I'm all over the place. But no, no, no. This is, when this I, is when right I'm at the heart of it. Airport, when I'm in the airport and I see a kid running, <laughs> running in the airport, and I go, you know, when did we stop doing that? Like, what was the age where we we ran through the airport and all of a sudden we go, oh, wow, that's not cool. I, I look funny. You know, like, sure, you should run. I want to get there and chill. You know, yeah, run. I'm getting my exercise in, whatever. But it was just instinctual for a kid to just go, man, I want to get here fast because I want to see what's over there. Or screaming, ah, because you want to be heard. Ah. When did we stop doing that? Shh, be quiet. You know, you disturb other people. And I still look at the world in a very innocent, childlike way, even though, please don't get me wrong, I see the brutality, the cruelty, the 
harshness just all over the world. I mean, I do gigs in every country, and I can't believe the last time I went to Venezuela, and I just, I was like in tears driving to my hotel because, you know, 20 years before when I was really young, it was all beautiful, and next time it was like just sort of like the equivalent of Brazilian like favelas just one on time. It was just like, wow. I was like, what happened? Like, what happened? It was like all amazing and beautiful. And then, um, you know, I remember the first time I played in Sao Paulo in Brazil and I saw a little child get shot in the back and killed for stealing a candy bar. I was like, you gotta be kidding. And I talked to my guide from Warner Brothers at the time. And I said to him, because to him, it's like, it was like nothing. It, poof, oh, that happens all the time. And I said, the kid clearly just had a candy bar in his hand. He was running. He ran into the store, got the candy bar, and was running. Police just happened to be around the corner. They see him, and they took aim. The guy got down, shot the kid right in the back, and he died. And the person from my record label said, oh, that's how God meant for them to be. And I was like, whoa, what? That's how God meant for them to be. I mean, it was just like fluffed off. And I understand that different cultures have different ways of dealing with things. But the one thing that I've always seen is that Black people all around the world are discriminated against because we can't hide this. You could assimilate, like my stepfather was Jewish, but because of the way that he dressed and the way that he spoke and his brilliant mathematical brain, you know, he could be as waspy as he wanted. He could have any job he wanted. He dressed impeccably. And, you know, so he could hide his Lower East Side Jewish schmata business upbringing. He could pretend to be the CEO of General Motors and people would accept it right just like that because he walked in and looked like he was the CEO of the world. I can't do that. I can't, I'm always this guy. I mean, that, that's it. No matter what, no matter how, how many kings and queens I know and how many times I get invited to this palace and that palace and the fact that the president of Sweden is air guitaring to me when we play in Sweden and, and the fact that Prince Albert comes to every one of our gigs in the south of France or Monaco, big deal. Try and t- say that to a cop. Wait a minute. No, man. King of Sweden, man, like, is my boy, you know? It's like, so what? <laughs> Pow. <laughs> Your taillight's broken. I mean, it's like Black lives are that cheap. And I'm not just speaking metaphorically, which it sounds like. I have oh, 20, 30 incidents that I could pull up right off the top of my head where police have actually pulled guns out on me. And I was a child. I mean, so it's happened to me since I was a child, right up until a couple of years ago when I was doing a band, producing a band in Vermont. And uh, cops rained down on me with guns and a super burst of cacophony. Go, <laughs> They were saying, get on the ground. I had no idea what they were saying because it's not like they were rehearsing. Go, one, two, three, get on the ground. Two, three, get on the ground. It was like... <laughs> Next thing you know, I'm looking at these guys going, what do you, you know? And now, just real quick, we got to wrap up. Yeah, so I know. I have another do, You want to just say a, a final thing and then? 
Yeah, I just wanted to quickly talk to you about one of our new initiatives, our Youth to the Front Fund. What we're doing is we've learned that so many of these well-intentioned youth organizations that are anti-racist and anti-bias organizations are underfunded. So we wanted to set up a program that's never going away. Our programs are always good. Like, you know, when you see our tax return next year, you'll see that's just part of our program that uh, we started this because our teens have let me know that some of their, their initiatives are just underfunded and they'd still be going strong if they had support, but they don't have the type of training that we had in the Black Panther Party. They don't know how to engage with with vendors and corporations and people that can come in there and assist them. So we will be a sort of mini accelerator to help them get to the next level. So that's what Youth of the Fund is all about. To the front fund. I I would honestly, I would. (laughs) You have so many things I want to keep talking to you about. I know. I have been. I have been instructed very, very carefully to get you off the phone so that you could go out to your next call. But listen, I know. Really, really inspirational stuff. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. And please, I hope you know, whenever you're doing something that you want to get out there in the world, please, I hope you come back on because it was really, really great talking with you. Thank you, man. I hope I'm not too giddy. I I had coffee today for the first time in about two or three months. It was awesome. Thank you. All right, man. Take Take it easy. Later. So there you have it. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Nile Rodgers talking about how he understands his life purpose, both from a philosophical and practical perspective, and he puts it into action. He imagined a utopian world, and anyone who has been on the dance floor when his songs come on know that he succeeded in making us feel that love, that connection with others through his music. And his activism, all the way from the Black Panther Party to the We Are Family Foundation, takes on the tough issues of systemic racism and inequality. And he does it from a place of love and education rather than anger and hate. So get at it, hardcore humans. Pursue your own purpose. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell your friends about the Hardcore Humanism podcast. See you next week.